So good to see y'all on this beautiful spring morning. Another one of them. <laughs> My name is Adrian. I'm one of the pastors here at Carnegie Free, and uh, great to be with you today here in the auditorium. Welcome to everyone watching online at CarneyEFree.com. Really appreciate you joining us here today through that venue and all those watching in the venue as well with Pastor Jordan and the crew over there. Welcome and thanks for joining us today. Uh, grateful to be in this place, in this beautiful church. We have been going through this uh, sermon series now the past three weeks in which we've been talking about this beautiful mess called the church and simply acknowledging that the church is beautiful. And the church is messy. It is both because we are beautiful. Amen? And we are messy. <laughs> no amens to that, right? <laughs> now, we're both of those. We're beautiful and we're messy. And so the church is going to be beautiful and messy, but it's the redemptive people of God who have been called out by God and we are seeking to live for God and for the benefit of our communities. You know, we, we've been expressing a certain number of sentiments over these past weeks, and I just want to reinforce a few of them. We don't merely go to church. We are the church. Don't merely become a member of a church. Be the church. Don't merely go to church saying, how can the church fill me? Go to church. Go to life group. Go to different ministries saying, whom can I fill? These seem to be the sentiments of the earliest Christians as we see them described in the book of Acts. I'd invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Acts chapter 2, or to open that on your app, and uh, listen to the description of the very first church though, that we have in the Bible. Just as a reminder here, but before the time of Christ, uh, there was no church. Uh, followers of God, worshipers of Yahweh, of the one true God, did gather together as an assembly. They gathered in synagogues, and they gathered at the temple. And then at the time of Jesus, Jesus gathered, of course, 12 disciples to him. And then in addition to those 12 disciples, 72 others, 12 men, and then 72 men and women, and then a couple hundred others that eventually seemed to follow him over the course of his three-year ministry here on earth. Now, the end of that ministry, it was a small but growing band of people. But I must emphasize, it was a very small band. Inside of the great multi-continent empire that was called Rome. Rome was... Tens of millions of people, I believe 60 million people at the time, and followers of Christ were perhaps a few hundred at the time. Now Jesus promised to build his church and promised that the church would be sacrificial and gracious and it would be loving, and therefore as a result of that it would be powerful. And after his death and resurrection, Jesus sends out his inner 12 disciples to go into the world and to make a difference for the cause of Christ. If you weren't here last Sunday, Pastor Charles did a wonderful job talking about the Great Commission and how God called those 12 disciples out and calls us to go out into the world and to make a difference well, wherever we would go for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he noted how these 12 disciples got these uh, marching orders, but they just kind of stood there with the marching orders. Like Jesus ascended into the sky and they stood there waiting for Jesus to possibly come back. They were like, what do we do now? 
And then a couple other men come to the apostles and they say, what are you waiting for? He's gone. He's in heaven. He's given you the Holy Spirit. Now go. Go and be my witnesses, as Jesus said. And so they do. And Peter leads the way in the next chapter, Acts chapter 2, as he goes into the heart of metropolitan Jerusalem. And Jews from all over the Roman Empire have gathered together in the temple in Jerusalem for a Jewish holiday called Pentecost. They gather together for Pentecost, and they're there to hear preaching and receive messages and to gather with other Jews from the known world. And you have people from all over, from Africa and from the Mediterranean and from parts of the Middle East, and they're there, and as they are in the temple courts, the apostle Peter listens to Jesus' directions that he's just been given, and he begins to preach. And we pick it up there in Acts chapter 2 as he's telling this great crowd of people that have gathered around him about Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave and his invitation to you and me to become sons and daughters of God, to receive the Holy Spirit and to live for Christ ourselves. And he says this in verse 36, Acts chapter 2, verse 36. He says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified. Wow. He turns to the Jews in the audience there as he would turn to us. And he would say these words. God made this Jesus whom you and I crucified. Okay, it was our sin that put Jesus on the cross. You believe that? Okay, that's basic Christian theology 101. It's our sin that put Jesus on the cross. God made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Messiah means Savior. So Lord is leader, guide, king over our lives, and Messiah, the one who saves us from our guilt and our sins. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. Right response. When we hear the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're cut to our hearts. And they said to Peter and to the other apostles, brothers, what do we do? What do we do? I mean, we realize we have all this guilt. We realize what we've done. What do we do? Again, this is at the end of Peter's message. You have to read all of Acts 2 to get the whole message. Uh, Peter replied, repent and be baptized. Repent and you'll be forgiven. Then the next step is, is baptism for identification well, with Christ. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So there's like maybe a few hundred Christ followers, and then in one day, they add 3,000. Hallelujah, right? And then, oh my, like what do we do now? How are we going to handle all these people? Well, what they did next is organize churches. That's the next thing they did. 
Perhaps they would have had Jesus' words ringing in their ears at this moment that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. No wickedness will ever prevail against the, the church of Jesus. Maybe they had that in their minds. And they start to build these churches that are characterized by called out people who have received that basic gospel message that I just articulated, that Jesus Christ died for your sins, and you receive that, and you name him as Lord and Savior, and you become a child of God. Made up of those folks who have been called out of darkness and into God's wonderful light. Made up of people who are committed to a cause which is bigger than ourselves. Made up of people who are on mission. And today, made up of people who are generous together. Because the church, my friends, what we hope to say in this series, the church is God's plan A for the world. And there's no plan B. His plan A, his plan B, his plan C for the world is ordinary Christians like us who are sold out to him and saying, I am living for his purposes. Verse 42, it goes on. As they organize, Peter's message is done, and here's how they organize. Just look at verse 42 and 43 with me real quickly. It says, they devoted themselves, circling your Bible, devoted. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What's that? The apostles' teaching is the gospel message that was handed down to the apostles, taught to the apostles by Jesus Christ himself. And so I just want to reiterate here a little bit our discipleship pathway that we've talked a lot about here the past number of weeks, truth, gospel, community, and mission. The apostles' teaching would be receiving the truth of the gospel. They devote themselves to receiving the truth of the gospel on a consistent basis through the apostles' teaching as given to them by Jesus Christ. They devote themselves there, then they devote themselves to fellowship and to the breaking of bread. That's community, right? That they choose to gather together in community with one another. They choose community, recognizing they're very different people from different places and different backgrounds, but I choose you in community. And then prayer. They devote themselves to prayer in all of these different environments. Now it goes on from there to say, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Now I recognize sometimes people read verse 43 and they say, like, were the apostles doing some kind of magic show? It's not that. The wonders and the miraculous signs that were done by the apostles were simply, they were going out and caring for people in need. So they saw people that had relational heartache and they prayed for them and they cared for them. They saw people who didn't know Christ and they shared the gospel message with Christ, and the most miraculous thing ever is conversion. The conversion of one soul is the most beautiful miracle that God ever does, amen? And so people would be converted from death to life as they heard the message, and God also gave these apostles, at least in some cases it seems, the gift of healing. And so they'd go out and they'd listen to people's stories, and they needed physical healing, and the apostles brought that gift of healing by the power of the Holy Spirit, and people were healed from their illnesses and delivered from demons, and on and on. But it was a heart-wrenching, life-giving mission. And once again, as we've noted in these past weeks, it's all of these together that make for a disciple. It's being on mission, it's being in community, it's devoting ourselves to gospel teaching and doing all of that in prayer. So, I just want to reiterate that to remind us all that our discipleship pathway here doesn't come out of my brain, as dull as that is. It comes out of the Bible. 
right? Comes out of the Bible, and that's why we do these different things that we talk about in our discipleship pathway. Look once again at this passage. Now I'm going to read it in full, verse 42 to 47. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and miraculous signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added daily to their number those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father, what a passage this is. What extraordinary description of the earliest church that we have record of. Lord, we ask that you would teach us this morning, that you would inform us as Christians, you would convict us where needed, you would comfort us where needed, and perhaps you would even inform us as a church from this passage. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for your living word. In Christ's name, amen. I'd like to suggest from these short verses, Acts 2, 42 to 47, Three ways that God would intend us to be generous together. Okay, three ways the church would stand apart from the world by the ways that we are generous together. And the first one that's quite obvious from the passage is simply this. We're generous with our time, aren't we? We choose to be generous with our time with one another. We choose to give of ourselves and our time to each other. Verse 46 says, Every day they continue to meet together in the temple courts. Now, the temple courts were huge. It was probably the size of three to four football fields. So you'd have small clusters of these 3,300 Christians now at this point gathering together in little clusters around the temple courts, which were these huge, spacious areas. They would meet together on a daily basis, not as a one-time-per-week event for them, not a little routine that they got into. It was part of their daily practice that they would gather together and pray with one another. They would meet together to serve each other. They would meet together to enjoy one another. They would meet together to plan for the mission that God was giving them together. This was a day-to-day reality for them, not a -a once-a-week routine for them. They didn't just go to church on Sundays. They were the church on Mondays, okay? As we talk about. Now, we may not gather here on a daily basis, but we seek to encourage each other Hopefully, two or three times a week, different touch points that we would have with other followers of Christ here at Carney E. Free, that we would encourage each other toward being the church throughout the week. Now, I found in my journey that we're all similar this way. We're all similar in this way. We give our time to what matters most to us. Would you agree? Hopefully, we agree. Nod your head with me if you agree. We are a responsive church in here. (laughs) Okay. Um, You can talk back to me too. All right. So uh, we give our time to what matters most to us, and that's true for all people. And so I'm kind of challenging myself in 2022, Adrian, how will you be more extraordinary with the time that God has given you? It's one of my challenges personally. How will I be more extraordinary with the time that God has given me for the things that matter most to me? So 
I know, for example, that I have an extraordinary God who has paid an extraordinary price for me to enter into his family. I know as well that I have an extraordinary family with an extraordinary wife. I know as well that I have an extraordinary church that I get the pleasure of being a part of leading, and this is an extraordinary church. And so, how do I respond by being extraordinary with my time and with the responsibilities that God has given to me? That's a question that I'm asking in 2022. It's a question I'm challenging myself with often. And it strikes me that there's a whole lot of ordinary out there. Like ordinary is this. Ordinary is hanging out on your couch with a soda in one hand and junk food in the other hand, spending hours upon hours in front of the TV, scrolling through social media, or playing video games. That's ordinary, right folks? Mm. It, it also strikes me that it's ordinary to work around the clock, just put in more and more hours so that you could get a better car to put into the box. Or to work around the clock more and more hours just for this one purpose, to build a better box for that better car. That's ordinary. Like everybody does that. That's ordinary. What's extraordinary is getting off that couch and playing with your kids. What's extraordinary is mentoring a child who is in need. What's extraordinary is knowing that there is a single mom in the neighborhood and you go out of your way to care for her. What's extraordinary is realizing we have a ministry here called Men in Action for widows and widowers and others in need within our church family, and I'm going to give four hours a month to that because I care about those who God cares about in our family that need help. That would be extraordinary. What's extraordinary is I know someone who needs discipleship, who's never been discipled in Christ, and I have an opportunity that I could do that. I want to be extraordinary with the time God has given me. Now, even as I say that, i got to admit to you, it's way easier for me to be generous with my money than it is for me to be generous with my time. Because I like some me time. Anybody else? I like some me time, and the simple fact is God created me as an introvert, but then he gave me a job that requires me to be an extrovert. I'm like a trained extrovert, okay? Like, I enjoy being at home with my family, doing an art project, playing basketball by myself or with some of you. I, I enjoy reading a book and being refreshed by that. And that's all fine. God knows our personality, and there's nothing wrong with, with any of that. But I have to challenge myself not to get too buried in that which refreshes me and to be sure that I'm using the time that God has given me for redemptive purposes for his kingdom. We're generous with our time. And then second, we're generous with our money. Look at verses 44 and 45. All the believers were together and they had everything in common. They even sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Now friends, if you'd like to see what a sacrificial, loving church looks like, I would encourage you to study the book of Acts. And particularly, I'd encourage you to study the first eight chapters of the book of Acts, and you'll see extraordinary generosity with both time and money from the earliest Christians. Like they actually did what that verse says. 
In chapter 4, there's a church leader by the name of Barnabas, and he sees that there's some other people in the early church community that are impoverished, and you know what he does? He sells an extra plot of land that he has to provide for those who are poor within the church. In Acts chapter 6, the apostles realize that this thing is getting too big. There's 5,000 followers of Christ now, and they have not yet organized for the distribution of bread and other necessities for people in need within their fellowship. And there's this scandal that develops in the church in which some widows are getting cared for and other widows are being neglected. And so they have to organize a deacon committee for the very first time so that bread is evenly distributed to all those who are in need while within the early church. I would look at verse 44 and 45, and I would underline the words in my Bible, they had everything in common. They had everything in common. Now, this isn't that they were all Republicans or all Democrats. It's not that. It's not that they were all Kansas City Chiefs fans or Cincinnati Bengals fans. It's not that. It's not that they were all steady eddies or they all like the same foods, or they all like the same music. It's none of those little things. It's this, they had everything in common as in, they had a tool shed in the neighborhood and anyone could use that tool shed. There was a lawnmower for everyone in the neighborhood to use. It's that kind of thing. Okay, I have a car, you don't have a car, you're welcome to use my car. It's Jesus' words coming into actuality here with the early church when Jesus says, if one of you has two coats and someone else has zero coats, well, just go out of your way and give that person who has zero coats, give them one of your coats. It's not a big deal. It's that. They live that way. Now, I've been asked on a number of different occasions by people who have studied the book of Acts, and particularly these first six or eight chapters in the book of Acts, like, Adrian, is this communism? I've been asked that question. Boy, it's quiet in here. No, it's not. Of course it's not. Modern communism is top-down, coerced giving, even taking, redistributing, forced, right? But what this is, make no mistake, is I am my brother's keeper. I am my sister's keeper. It's communalism. This is a form of communalism that is voluntary, that is grassroots from the ground up that says, I see a real brother or sister in need. I have more than enough. I want to help them. And it's motivated not out of force or coercion or by government control. It's motivated by the higher power of love. I love the way William Law put it. He was one of the earliest and most influential Puritan pastors, and he wrote, it was said of the early Christian fellowship they were glad to turn their whole estates into a constant course of charity. And friends, at least in my experience, when you get a whiff of that kind of living, you say, man, that smells so much like Jesus. Mm, that's just so attractive to see that. 
I understand that whenever the subject of money comes up in the church, people get squirmy. And I just want to ask you right now, please don't squirm. Okay, you don't need to squirm. There's no guilt fuff from this stage. That's not the way I talk about money. But we do talk about money fuff from time to time in this room because it's a big part of life. And because Jesus talks about it a lot. He talks about it this much. I talk about it this much. But we do talk about it sometimes because it's a big part of life. And I believe that we can actually build trust within the church and with the broader community by the way we talk about and by the way we think about our money. Now, there's a really, really easy way to lose trust with the broader community who looks at the church by the way we live and by especially the way we talk about money, isn't there? We know that many non-Christians, many of those outside the church, perhaps even many today, have an inherent distrust toward the church related to money. And the reason for that is they've heard messages from people who preach a health and wealth, give to get gospel. You've heard that. They've also seen and heard about these pastors who live luxurious lifestyles, or they see ordinary Christians who live luxurious lifestyles and don't seem to care about those who have so little. And so it breeds this sense of distrust. There's a current movement going on called preachers with sneakers. Have you heard of that? Anyone? It's like these preachers who are competing to see who can have the sweetest sneakers, and they're wearing $500 pair of shoes. I'm telling you, that is such an embarrassment to my profession. That's an embarrassment. That whole health and wealth gospel junk is a stain on the body of Christ. And it breeds distrust from out there toward everything happening in here. We're not that way. What we do is we build trust in the way we talk about money. It's a big part of life, and so we talk about it from time to time, but never with guilt or coercion. Again, if you adopt an American consumer mentality related to money and possessions, that is ordinary. Everybody does that. But adopting a biblical mentality of generosity with our money, that is extraordinary. Biblically, you've probably heard of a tithe. A tithe was God's Old Testament standard for a baseline of generosity. It was 10% of one's income set aside for the temple and for the priests and for the poor. And the tithe is a great starting point to propel us toward extraordinary generosity. But it's interesting to me, while Jesus seems to assume the tithe, he nowhere commands the tithe. I wonder why that is. I have a couple reasons. I think Number one reason is he doesn't command the tithe because we humans, well, when it comes to money, what we will tend to do is say, okay, I got my minimum standard and I'm done. That's what we tend to do, well, when it comes to money. And Jesus doesn't want us to do that. He always wants to say, how can I grow more and more in anything that I do, including the discipline and the grace of generosity? But number two, I think Jesus does not command the tithe in the New Testament because he wants people to have grace when they're in very difficult seasons of life. I believe that there are probably people in this room, probably people watching online at carneyfree.com right now, who are going through a very difficult season of life because of some medical issue, or some relational issue, or unemployment, and during this season in life, it's simply not possible for you to tithe 
to your missionaries or to your church or to whatever it might be. And I believe Jesus would say there is grace for that. And you will never receive anything but that grace fall from me on this stage as it relates to that. And I have no idea what anyone gives. I never want to know what anyone gives. I don't care about that. There's grace for that. But what God does want is to give us this beautiful gift of generosity, both for our benefit and then also for the building of the church across the world. And so maybe you're new to this, and you're just entering in the workforce for the first time, or you're newer to church yourself. We have lots of folks, though, that are newer to church, and you say, I don't even know where to start with this. Well, here's where you start. You begin to say, I prioritize, let me give you three words, I prioritize with my money giving first. I give first. Here's my priority. Well, when it comes to my money that God has given, all of it is actually His, He's given some money to us to steward for our 70 years here on earth, or whatever years he gives us. But priority is this. I give first, I save second, and I spend third. That's the ordering. And you want to get used to living on 75% of your income. Like discipline yourself in that way. Priority. Second is percentage. That wherever you are, even if you've never entered into giving to a missionary or to a church or whatever it might be, you begin with a percentage that is realistic for you as you're just now starting out. And maybe that percentage will only be 3 or 4 or 5%. That's okay. Start there. And I believe God in His grace will have that right there because it comes from a heart, a desire to worship God with all that He's given. And then the third word is progressive that you grow in that grace of generosity, that gift of generosity year by year. What Susie and I try to do is increase our generosity every year by percentage of income compared to the previous year. We're not thinking about 10%, no way. We're thinking about completely different numbers other than that. Because we recognize God has blessed us with more than we need, and we have an opportunity to live on far less than we make, so we can be a part of things that are far more important than more stuff for us. Anyone? Now, here's the upshot of generosity, well, when it comes to our money. Friends, as we grow generosity, we get to build up the mission of God in the church and through missionaries, and as we support the poor and all of that, and simultaneously for our benefit, generosity directed toward God builds a more joyous life for us. The simple fact that we've all found is, well, when it comes to money, money is like crabgrass on the heart, isn't it? It has a way of grabbing our hearts and clutching us, and we have to kind of reroute it again and again and again. Because as it clutches our hearts, it comes with these terrible words like discontent, and bitterness, and greed, and selfishness. Those kinds of words get rooted in our hearts, don't they? Like it's true for all of us, everyone on stage and everyone in this room. And so we have to uproot it. And in order to do so, God, because he loves us so much, gives us the gift of generosity so that we could have less of those tentacles, less of that crabgrass. We could uproot that stuff out of our hearts and thereby have more joy in our lives. Like, make no mistake, we give to give. We don't give to get here, amen? We don't give to get, we give to give. 
But if you give to give, you'll also get more joy because the crabgrass of greed and discontent and bitterness and envy will be uprooted more and more from your soul. All right, we're generous with our time. We're generous with our money. And most importantly, not number three, real quickly, we are generous from our hearts. This is the key, that we would be generous from our hearts. I have a wonderful testimony from a gentleman in our church that I'd like you to take a look at. He and his wife live a life of generosity from their hearts, in their neighborhoods, and here at our church. Take a look at this video. Hi, my name is John Bonk. My wife Sandy and I have lived in Kearney for almost 30 years. Same house, same neighborhood, and we've been attending uh, E-Free here for that period of time. Well, Sandy and I have a, a, a strong compassion for our neighbors. You know, we, uh, we have, for, you know, over the years, we have um, attempted to reach out to our neighborhood with, you know, just to be friends and to be cordial, to, to help out wherever we can. I had a couple ice cream socials and then COVID shut that down. But part of that, part of, part of what we wanted to do is not only connect with them, but we were hoping that the, the neighborhood would connect with each other as well to develop community. You know, if it's, it's fun uh, to, to serve the, the people we, we know in, the, in our neighborhood. Um, if, if they're out of town and it snows, we scoop the walk. If, if trash needs to be brought out to the curb, we, we do that. Uh, produce in the garden, if I have an overabundance over of produce, they're in line. But, you know, um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, bachelors that show up in our neighborhood. And they remind me of when I was young, wild and woolly, and they become a target. I mean, I mean, I want to know them. I want to know them. Uh, but um, <laughs> I took over a plate of goodies. Uh, they were having a party, and I took a plate of goodies over to one group of, of bachelors. And, and uh, a few minutes later, they're running across the street to my house. Each of them have a beer in each hand, and they're offering me a beer, and I don't drink. And I told them, and they, no, no big deal. They left and came back with brats and hamburgers for Sandy and I, and it was just, just great. Um, and because of that, those kind of things happening, I've had individual opportunities to share a bit of my story with them and just connect and uh, ask them, how can we pray for you? And it's, it's been good, it's been good. You know, when I think oftentimes when we first tried to reach out to our neighbors, we were always looking for a way to bring up God. And we would, I think, fail miserably. And the enemy would always hound us and make fun of us and, or accuse us, you did it wrong, you did it, you know, you should have said this. God doesn't work that way. He's gentle and he is a coach. And so, you know, we would, we would go back and, and do, you know, do it again. But recently, within the last year, Sandra brought up the idea, well, let's start praying for, um, for our neighborhood. 
And so for the past year, almost every night, we've, we've been praying for each of the people we know in our neighborhood. That's, that's 15 homes in our neighborhood. And it's, you know, you would think that after, you know, praying for the same people, for the same thing, night after night would get boring. It does not. And we have seen changes. Maybe not so much in them, but we have changed. Our compassion for them has grown. We want to see them in heaven. We want to see them know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Our Christianity is not an event. It's a lifestyle. We just don't come to church on Sunday for one hour. We live it day in and day out. And, you know, whether, whether, whether it's talking to the neighbors, going to the grocery store, there's always an opportunity to be used by God through His Holy Spirit to share love, to share Christ, to be unconditional. I'm personally inspired by that. When I see that far from John and Sandy, and I happen to know them personally well, uh, well enough to know that that compassion that you hear from him there is authentic. That's who they are. And that's how they operate with respect to this church that they love and they serve. John's one of our elder board members. They both serve faithfully and lovingly in our church, give to our church, but also as they reach out to the community around them, you, you didn't hear any guilt there, did you? Like, did you hear any begrudging attitude? No, this, I get to be generous with my time from the heart out of all that God has given to me. John and Sandy are motivated by the gospel of Jesus Christ, which simply says this, I want to remind us, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word there could be generosity. You know the generosity of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, in order that through his poverty we might become rich. This is the character of our God. His grace, His generosity comes to us that we might become rich to God in a different kind of way. And so also it was true with the earliest church as we've seen. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to prayer and to fellowship. They gave of their time to one another with glad and sincere hearts. They were hospitable to one another. They were generous well with their money. On and on it goes. And it says this, verse 46 and 47, here's how the description of the early church wraps up. It says, they broke bread in their homes, they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They did it from their hearts. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, imagine that, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is my prayer that I would be the kind of person and that we would be the kind of church that would be glad to give of our time. 
and glad to live generously with our money. And we would do it with glad and sincere hearts that we would recognize, oh, I get to surrender my calendar and my wallet to God who has given it all to me. And like the secret of it all is what you saw from John there, it's actually a lot more fun than another pair of sneakers. True generosity from the heart is a lot more fun than more stuff for me. And when people see it, they stand in awe. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what an example. What an example your early church is. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you so filled these men and women, that your spirit was so living and active in them, that they lived in extraordinary ways, that they did not count their lives as their own, they did not count their time or their money as their own. They gladly received from you and gave it back to what you wanted done in the world. Father, I recognize that this message is probably a great comfort to many in this room. And we thank you, God, for the comfort that comes far from your Holy Spirit. We need to be inspired by what the church really could look like. And I pray for many of us that we are inspired by the beauty of what the church could become. And for others, this message will be afflicting. And we welcome that too. Because your Holy Spirit comforts those who are afflicted, but also afflicts those who are comfortable. And the simple fact is, some of us have probably gotten comfortable as it relates to my time my money, my stuff. And so we receive what you would have for us as we seek to become a generous church together. We love you, Lord. We thank you that you have given us all that we have. We give you praise for who you are. We pray for those who have less today, who are in need of help. May they know that they're part of a church that would love to help. In Christ's name we ask, amen.